Hello, I'll just do a very short um, presentation of Carmen and uh, Doma, and then I'll pass the, to them. So they are the um, median group Bitnik, which reads not media group Bitnik, are a group of contemporary artists who work with public spaces, especially the online one, and the way it affects the physical world. So their work has a subversive character and often involves a loss of control. In 2013, they gained international media attention with their artwork delivery for Mr. Assange. And there's a book here that you can check. So they describe it as a live mile art piece. A parcel was sent to WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange at the Ecuadorian embassy in London. The parcel contained a camera which broadcast live on the internet its journey through the postal system. The parcel eventually made it to the embassy and Assange used it to send little messages written on postcards to thank Ecuador and express his support for other people in similar situations. But the reason why we invited them to present here today is because they're equally famous random darknet shopper clearly highlights issues surrounding the accountability of bots and the legal conceptions of responsibility, or rather the lack of such conceptions implied by semi-autonomous software. And as we witness the introduction of driverless cars, drones, and other automated technologies, the question of responsibility becomes even more acute. So who is answerable for what the, the bot buys? Is it the gallery that receives the goods, the artists who program the bot, or is it the bot itself? So furthermore, this work offers us a very concrete example which encourages us to reflect on the complexity of these novel social relationships, that is, those between human and non-human entities, which is why we called this uh, series of talks Human Entities. Thank you. So, hello. Um, thank you for the invitation. Thank you for the lovely introduction. And um, we're really happy to be here tonight. Um, we're meeting Gruppe Bitnik. This is Doma. My name is Carmen. Uh, we're based in Zurich, Switzerland. And as Sophia said, we work in online and offline spaces, often where they sort of meet, where, which is everywhere today, I guess. And uh, we would like to show you some of our works, um, some of them more briefly. Uh, we can also, um, you know, if there's immediate questions, you can, we're fine if you ask them during the talk, um, or we'll get to questions afterwards. So the, the first work we would like to very briefly introduce is um, the work Sophia already um, briefly talked about called Delivery for Mr. Assange. It's an um, online performance we did in 2013. Uh, in January 2013 um, and our starting point here was an interest in the 
Ecuadorian embassy in London, so the actual physical space in London uh, where the em embassy is. The embassy is located right behind Harrods. If you know London a bit, that's a very touristy, um, you know, shopping area where tourists go. And uh, what interested us was that we actually encountered a sort of a war zone in midst of London around uh, the Ecuadorian embassy. The embassy was um, um, surrounded by British police um, about a month after Julian Assange fled to the embassy. And when we first saw it, it was really like, you know, you would walk through shoppers and uh, tourists and you would just be standing there in this very curious situation outside the embassy And we really wondered about this because as artists, we, I think we often try to find um, images for what's going on around us with technology. And it's really hard to find images. Um, so we encounter these situations where, um, you know, the internet aficionados, they're trying to make the internet more free. And then you have the powers that be that sort of try to... Um, act against that and then you get a situation like in front of the embassy where you sort of um, see what's happening. Mm. Normally those fights are totally mediatized but there you have something like a physical evidence and we were like really interested in that physical space there. And uh, one of our questions was, I mean, like, is there a way to address embassies? Is there a way inside? of kind of also maybe intervene into something like a geopolitical situations I mean like as an artist we have computers we can use the internet okay, can we do something with that so we um, we looked at the situation outside the embassy and what we realized really fast was that one of the systems that worked very well still um, even though the embassy was in this very um, highly surveilled situation with police surrounding it um, was the postal system there were postal people going in and out every day and we thought that's actually a very nice way of getting through this police barrier without physically having to take our bodies there so we ask ourselves I mean like what happens if we send a parcel uh, or a letter to Julian Assange You know, I mean, like, and, and obvious questions are, which route will it take? Will the police open it? Will he receive it? And this meant we needed something like a, like a feedback system. So we wanted to have something we could f see where it's going and feel where it's going. So we decided to build this parcel and put some technology inside um, and have a small hole. Um, where a camera was attached behind it, and uh, and the camera was, um, you know, attached to a lot of batteries, and there was like a GPS, um, uh, a, a GPS receiver inside, so basically we could maybe follow it. So uh, our idea was to fly to London, go there, uh, build this parcel, address it to Julian Assange, drop it to a mailbox and go and see where it, uh, where it would lead. And it would upload the pictures to our server every 15 seconds. So we would have something like a live feed of this thing, uh, narrating through the postal system. And um, 
Yeah, that's exactly what we did. So we uh, posted this parcel, you can see the address, in uh, East London, um, because... Or the idea was not to send it from Zurich because Switzerland is not, um, you know, very difficult with um, uh, technology and uh, our borders. Uh, borders. Customs. Exactly. So uh, we went to London, we sent it. Um, this is one of the first images from the parcel. Um, it's at the post office and you see Doma in the mirror. You can see Doma queuing up with the parcel. And um, we're just going to show you a very, very small selection of images. You, these images are still, like, all our work, it's online, so you can go and look at the other images if you feel like it. And um, we really didn't know whether they would accept the parcel um, because it had a hole in the side and it was addressed to Julian Assange, so we thought, you know, maybe they'll just say, I'm not, you know go away or something, but they did accept the parcel. This is the uh, postal worker accepting the parcel. And the parcel, as you probably expected, it immediately disappeared into a red postal bag. And it would stay in a red postal bag for hours. Yeah. And we would like, just like watch those red images yeah, yeah. and tweet about them and, you know, uh, waiting for something to happen. And... Um, The parcel then, after a few hours in this bag and being transported for a while in a, in a dark van, so we got a lot of very, uh, you know, black images, just images that were... I mean, like, most of the images were black, actually. Yeah. Uh, it reappeared in here. So you can also see from the images um, what interested us aesthetically was also that these are, it's unmanned photography, so it's not really anyone pointing the camera at something. It's um, a parcel being pushed through the postal system, and it's just what it sort of gets to see. Um, and uh, people online started taking interest in, in the images. There were a lot of people watching these images live and um, some people knew a lot about the British postal system and then started because we also had the GPS they you know they explained to us this is Mount Pleasant it's the first sorting office uh, within the city and the parcel will it will go through these and these stages and we try to see that online The red bags means that, the green exactly. bag means Yeah, that. and it went into a green bag, then everyone was like, oh, you sent it priority mail. We were like, yeah, well, you know, we didn't really want to wait for four days for it to arrive. And um, so we, we got these very poetic images we tried to make sense of together with people online um, of where it was at, what, it, what was happening to the parcel. Here we're also in, a, in another sorting office somewhere in London. Um, this is probably the sorting office outside of London. It, the parcel went to Heathrow, as apparently all parcels do when you send them from London. And um, so close to the airport where it was um, sorted into the pile that then went back into the city. And um, what 
what was interesting for us was that a lot of people really um, enjoyed this work. So it was a very, I mean, the progress was very slow. You had to watch this for hours. And people um, thought it was very intriguing to watch this parcel move through the system. Um, people were trying to imagine what would happen to the parcel. And... Um, Quite early in the work, our servers went down because there were so many people trying to watch these streams or watch this stream. And then people started um, making own Twitter accounts about the parcel, um, telling their own stories, uh, taking the images from our website, putting up mirrors, you know, trying to um, sort of help, us also help set, set with up the like narrative. More servers and, and stuff. It was really like, you know, you felt that there is something like an internet community taking care of you and trying to help you like in a in a yeah in a, you know in a, in a moment where we were totally overwhelmed with all the yeah the stress it produced this is already the next morning so we posted the parcel at around midday on a wednesday if i remember well so this is thursday morning um it's been uh, traveling the whole night we didn't really sleep, get a lot of sleep, um, trying to keep track of this parcel. And people started going, hey, um, Bitnik, you know, when's this thing going to be delivered? Because I really need to get some work done. And I've been watching this. And, you know, it's very addictive. I can't stop. And, you know, do you, do you think you can hurry this up? Hey, Bitnik, no one is working at our office. Hey, this is more exciting than the Mars rover. I just read some Twitter some tweets a black rectangle with life written on it in the corner has never been so interesting uh, I've been watching this for 24 hours I'm exhausted <laughs> and I mean like you know it would travel for hours and it would just like take tours around the embassy nobody was sure I mean like what's, what's happening with it we were waiting at 8 o'clock in the morning we thought okay we're there and nothing happened till 12 we were just like move meter after meter and uh, and and then uh, yeah we got this pics around noon uh, which was already uh, 24 hours in, in in the live performance uh, where we realized okay we're standing in front of the embassy and we have the proof now that we have spent the whole morning in a van and the van is empty now and uh, it seems that we are the last parcel to be you know, being delivered. Yeah, and somebody on the internet was like, isn't there anyone that can go and take a picture of this van standing there, you know, from the outside? Would have been nice. And here we got these, um, I don't know if you can see, there's like a wooden floor. We weren't really sure what was happening here. Very dark. And then we, um, a few hours later, we got this image. And in the meantime, WikiLeaks tweeted at us saying the parcel has arrived at the embassy. So we did cross that police line and it's with embassy security. So um, we were at the embassy but waiting for the embassy clearance. And we got these types of images and then this... This was like the first image we got out of the embassy. Um, immediately somebody said, oh, that's the antechamber of the ambassador's office where you 
get to wait. And the funny thing about this picture was it just like popped up for a second. There was only one shot of, of that. So it was pitch dark for like an hour and then this picture comes up and it gets dark again. And everybody's like, well, what was this? And afterwards we realized what happened to the embassy. The embassy had, had a lot, it produced a lot of stress for them because they're surrounded by the police. They don't like to have like cameras which they can't control inside their embassy and uh, also like a few months afterwards uh, it was clear that they found bugs in the uh, in the walls uh, the electricity was uh, you know every internet cable had, had was wired up and, and stuff so they were a little bit uh, paranoid about those things and uh, there was a good reason for it so what they have done is basically they didn't know how to deal with the parcel so they just like put that in a room turned off the lights and it seemed that at this specific moment somebody entered the room turned on the lights saw the parcel said fuck here it is turned off the lights and went, went outside again because they didn't uh, they couldn't decide what to do uh, at the same time Assange was really pushing it that he, he said I mean like BBC is covering that live you know we should do something there is not like I mean like this is a public performance we cannot just like hide that thing so um, but it seemed that that negotiation took uh, uh, quite a while and uh, some hours passed after that picture. And then at around six in the evening, we got um, this picture of a cat. And then this is this thing on. And here it was kind of clear. I mean, like, he, I think Julian is playing with us or he's holding that thing and, yeah, sending us messages or... And giving us a tour through Ecuador, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, welcome to Ecuador. And yeah, then, uh, as Sofia would say, he started to solidarize himself with, with people which are in similar situations like him. Free Bradley Manning, now known as yeah. Chelsea Justice Manning. For Justice for Aaron Swartz. Aaron Swartz is, is a is a computer programmer, uh, internet freedom activist who just killed himself two weeks prior to the performance, I think. Um, 2013. 2013. Uh, he was caught downloading 2.5 million PDFs from JSTOR, uh, which is like a scientific library from the MIT. And he didn't publish that that uh, his, his archive he basically produced for himself, but the state attorney in the US uh, wanted to give him 40 years of prison for that act, just like downloading scientific research papers which were kind of you know, produced in the comments. But uh, yeah, he couldn't do, deal with the stress and uh, there's a, a nice documentar documentary film now about Aaron Swartz, you should really look it up and he's a, uh, yeah, um, he really fought for internet standards and uh, he wrote RSS, which is like a protocol for, many of us use it for blogs. Blogs use them to synchronize um, news, news or feeds. Or feeds. Uh, he wrote that as 14-year-old boy, basically. Uh, so yeah, look, look that film up, it's really beautiful. Bradley Manning we know, uh, now known as Chelsea Manning, one of the whistleblowers of the um, Iraq and Afghanistan war files, war logs. Uh, Free Nabil Rajab is a Bahrainian uh, human rights activist. 
Uh, Brianna Carter, one of the founders of Pirate Bay. You may know um, the search engine for uh, torrents. torrents. Um, free Jeremy Hammond, uh, one of the activists associated with Anonymous, um, still in prison in the US. Free Rudolf Elmer, awaiting trial this summer, a Swiss whistleblower of the offshore. Julius Baer, um, like a bank offshore leaks. I think one of the first bank whistleblowers. Um, free Anons. Justice for Anne Swartz. Transparency for the state, transparency for the state, privacy for the rest of us. An image which is heavily shared, which became some sort of an internet meme. We see a lot of stickers um, produced with that picture, which is beautiful. Um, post lattice contagious. Thank you, Ecuador. Thank you to all our supporters. Keep fighting. And 2013, we win. Yeah. And uh, out of cards. And uh. that was the end of the on. No, it went on for another few hours till the batteries died. They just let the batteries die on the box in a dark room, and. Um, we then, a year later, uh, were asked to take this work and put it into the art space, the exhibition space. Um, and we um, transformed the online um, um, uh, performance into a two-channel video um, piece, just so you see how we then try to also adapt these online performances which um, stay online but they don't have any, usually don't have any physical manifestation and we're really interested in also um, physically manifesting them or finding ways of showing them within the art space. Uh, we had um, like a 30 meter scroll of all the images from the box so you see you know for example that's like the beginning with the red bag it was in that bag for a while and we also um, rebuilt Julian Assange's um, space or room where he lives at the Ecuadorian embassy so um, this really brought us back to our initial interest in this physical outside space. Uh, we went to visit Julian Assange various times at the embassy after the performance. And um, seeing the space he works from at the embassy really sort of um, um, uh, touched us because it's... Uh, a very, as you can see, maybe, uh, or you can guess from the image, it's a very, it's a very representative space, um, as you would find in any embassy, with um, furniture that is not very useful. It's more nice to look at. And then you have like the whole hacker culture that sort of goes on top as a layer with a desk and uh, computers and cabling and servers. And we found this really interesting. This um, this being confined to the insides of an embassy for years, but still being able to be active from a space that's about 20 square meters just because you have an internet connection and are really clever in using it also. Um, 
So we rebuilt this space within the exhibition. Uh, from memory, we weren't allowed to take any pictures. Um, the next work we would like to briefly talk about is called The Random Darknet Chopper, which we um, started in 2014 and which ran up until March this year, more or less. Um, we produced it for an exhibition in St. Gallen, which is a small town near Zurich in Switzerland, for an exhibition called um, The Darknet, From Memes to Onion Land and Exploration which we co-curated and where we showed 12 artworks around uh, topics from the darknet um, touching on anonymity or identity or um, visibility, invisibility. And our interest there was really um, to talk about this online space we work in as artists after the Snowden revelations. So in 2013, when um, the Snowden leaks um, came out, for us, um, like probably for many people, that was, it was really a shock. Um, not that the internet was surveilled or a, a space for surveillance, surveillance, but the amount of surveillance that was going on. And we really sort of felt that we had to, as artists, reevaluate this space and sort of think about... Um, how you can still work in a space that is so heavily surveilled, what do you do, um, you know, what, what types of work can you still produce? And this exhibition was probably our way of dealing with these concerns, trying to invite or find other artists who had also worked on these topics. And our, our contribution was the Random Darknet Chopper, um, which basically was an online shopping bot which we programmed to go shopping in the darknet once a week with a budget of $100 in bitcoins. And it randomly bought whatever it wanted. It chose one item per week and had it sent directly to the exhibition space. And the exhibition ran for 12 weeks, so we had um, the 12, like, vitrines uh, where we would, you know, once the items arrived, we would place them inside... Um, the vitrines. Mm. So there was like we had no control over whatever the bot was doing. So as Sophia also said, like the loss of control, which was evident also in this Assange piece where we had no control where the parcel is going and we had no control over the, the performance, the live performance. We also wanted to re-implement something like that here and um, we were really interested in the question of trust. I mean like how do you trust each other uh, if you are basically placed in a, an anonymous network where you don't know with whom you are dealing with or with whom you are uh, speaking with because the whole system is encrypted and not uh, publicly readable and it's kind of new. And we thought it might be good to explore this question, the question of trust, um, like in a system where um, goods being traded. So how does trust work there? Because, you know, if you send money, you should... Um, uh, how, how do you ensure that you will get something back when you have no idea where this guy is sitting? You have no idea um, where the server is locating, located, which hosts uh, the shop, uh, where you have no idea where the seller is, where you have no idea where the buyer is. How does those thing, things work? I mean, like... Uh, 
Yeah, and we wanted to explore that by by having an entity which is not us, but more, yeah, more more robotic or a bot, yeah, mm. which could could give us uh, like a, a a big variation of of uh, of, of, of an outcome. Mm. And at the same time, of course, um, the the dark nets as the sort of the internet. I don't know that whatever's below the internet um, is, of course, because it's an encrypted space and it ensures that nobody or it's really hard to find out where you are actually physically located um, means that it's mostly used by activists, by people who cannot openly access the internet in whatever country they are because the internet is censored or because they belong to a minority or... Um, an ethnicity that um, cannot openly access the net because it's so surveilled. Um, the shops are sort of a side thing that, um, of course, because it's business, is uh, very heavily um, also looked at, by, especially by our governments, so the US and Europe. Um, and we were really interested in finding out what actually was in those shops or is in those shops, because they're always portrayed as these terrible places where you can only buy drugs. And that's also why we programmed a, a random entity, you know, to randomly choose stuff, because we were really interested in, you know, what is really out there. And there's really like a, a narrative in the, in the mass media of, you know, the darknet being the... the, the, the a most horrible place where, where you could go, but, you know, it, it really remembers us. It's the same narrative how, you know, end of the 90s, people would speak about the internet. Go, don't go there because you will find everything, and maybe you will, but it's still, it's still important to us. So we wanted to explore that space, actually, by ourselves. So the, uh, we'll very briefly take you through the... 25 items the random darknet choppers bought um, the first item was actually still is one of our favorites it's a fire brigade master key set from the UK uh, which we have no idea what it does but the promise is that it's a key set that the fire brigade uses to open utility doors communal doors when they need access because in case of fire we have no idea whether it works, but the promise is really nice. And they cost $50. Then Chesterfield cigarettes um, from the Ukraine, um, which is quite a logical product to sell online. Not only in the, it's not only sold in the dark nets. Uh, because of the different custom taxations in Europe, it's quite, you know, it's what you take home when you take a plane, probably. Uh, for 40 US dollars from the Ukraine. Um, then a Louis Vuitton Trevi PM handbag, um, a luxury item which was a fake from the US for $95. Uh, this never arrived, but we, or well, our bot received the money back. The bitcoins, yeah. Um, then. The an e book co collected like. works of Tolkien in PDF format for so one is, US dollar. This is the print of it. 
a Visa Platinum card uh, with everything you need to know um, to go shopping online. We did not try out this. Uh, we were a bit afraid. This actually was the, the item that had us most worried, like in, in this sort of in, uh, in sense of responsibilities. A um, lot more worried than this. Um, these were 10 ecstasy pills. It's the wrong photo. I should put in the one with the ecstasy pills. So the, they're already gone. We'll tell you in a minute why they're gone. <laughs> These did not worry us that much. They arrived and we exhibited them like everything else. And um, then um, Nike Air GC, I think. Um, yeah, trainers that you need to be cool. Um, a spy cap with a hidden camera. The, the camera's in the, the little round hole. hole. Um, I, I like this also very much, more like on a... On a what was it called? Um, I have to, wait. It's called uh, Decoy First Class Letter. So it was basically, this is a test letter somebody sent from Australia. So if you are, if you want to check if your postal... Uh, your postal box is being surveilled. Uh, they will just like send you a letter, and you can see if anybody has opened it, or if it has, or if it arrives or not. So or it, it was, takes long, or, whether it takes longer or, to arrive or, or, or not. So it's just like a, um, like you know, in, in the com computer systems, we know this as a ping. You just go and check if something is online or not, and if the package returns, you send. And uh, yeah, we received that, just like plain letter after a few days and it was like, you know, the bot is testing his system if, you know, everything is running kind of nicely. A Sprite stash can uh, for stashing money or I don't know. It's a can, you know, you can screw on the top and it looks like a full can. It has the right weight. And some diesel, diesel men jeans, uh, also replicas. From Hong Kong, I think. And yet, really, you know, you start to humanize the bot. I mean, like, what is it? And it really looked like a kid, basically, preparing for an evening, you know. It has night out. Yeah, for a night out. It would have a cap, trousers. Oh, yeah, the passport. Yeah, there was, like, a, a, a scan of a passport uh, from Hungary, um, which was just, like, bad in... in, in not really useful, but I mean, like, it could be used if you need to prove your identity online. You can use this very bad, uh, scan. bad scan, like in a low resolution, nothing you could really print or something. Yeah, um, there, there was quite, so here you are, there you see the ecstasy. Yeah, I'm happy I got that. Um, so this is what the exhibition looked like towards the end. Um, there was a lot of media attention because I think this question of responsibilities and bots is, is a question that's very hard to pose and it's very hard to find the images. And our little bot, because it was just sort of randomly buying stuff, it was posing the questions but within a very, you know, very enclosed system, uh, very understandable, very, uh, you could, you know... It produced a lot of images also. So we had a lot of, especially U.S. media, discussing 
this issue of responsibility um, because I guess with Google self-driving cars and also um, all the bots uh, running the uh, online trading, the bank trading world, um, it's just a, a big issue. And um, so the, the day after the exhibition... I mean, like the headline before was also nice. It would say, oh, we have drug buying robots now. Like, yeah. what do we do? And uh, the next one was, you know, just like the day after the exhibition, uh, the police confiscated everything uh, which the bot has bought. Like every item, they just took the whole box, uh, which was already there, um, um, take, taken down from the walls. And yeah, then it would say drug buying robot arrested in Switzerland. And now basically the, the, the public prosecutor needed to decide how to deal with that question. Who, I mean, like, who is, who is responsible now? Is it, is it Bitnik who wrote that bot, who would, you know, um, perform that bot for 12 weeks? Is it the gallery? Uh, or the curator who handled the drugs because we never touched drugs. Uh, you know, I just got pictures from, from them because we are, weren't located, we weren't in St. Gallen during that time. Or is it, uh, is it the bot itself? Is it like a, a, legal, a legal entity? I mean, like, can, can, can he charge the bot? And, uh, so please remember that 2015 was the year a robot got arrested while doing performance art. Was it like another one of these... Um, nice tweets um, and it took us a while to actually understand what the problem was because the drugs had been on display for about six weeks they arrived in the middle of the exhibition and so that really confused us and um, the public prosecutor then um, filed a uh, for drug possession against unknown um, uh, because he his main issue was harming third parties um, so he was really worried that somebody would um, walk into the exhibition or any other exhibition we would show the drugs at later and accidentally take the drugs um, and we then owned up to possessing or to, you know, ownership of the drugs because we um, also wanted our, you know, our artwork back. And we had um, quite an interesting discussion about uh, the nature of art and um, the, the ease of stealing art out of art exhibitions. So we were actually, like, trying to say, yeah, but, you know, you don't go to an art exhibition and take drugs it's, it's not for an you don't take London stuff at and, exhibitions uh, the first you know, thing it's it behind the vitrine it's sort of locked in you Thailand. need a lot of criminal energy to do that um, and the um, second thing it so bought finally, was um, um, bitcoin usb bitcoin miners uh, random darknet so it was we actually had the impression of Random darknet chopper, he, he would like kind of state mining that, its own um, they're, money. They're very proud like, to be part of the project too, because legally it meant like really uh, there was like a really interesting question, and he would say, and he could not blame us for that. He could not blame the artists uh, for doing that because uh, it raised uh, an interesting question which should be debatable. Uh, 
in public uh, in a, in public sphere. So this was basically for him uh, the way um, out. the way out, uh, not not have to discuss the question about responsibility. So he could just say, Bitnik, it's not Bitnik's fault. The the access is here. The reason the access is here is. Uh, is a di it's a different one, and it's uh, it's an interesting one uh, to discuss. So, like with these Bitcoin miners, you can produce your own digital coins, basically by uh, giving power to the to the network, and and by giving power to the network, you would basically also earn money or earn earn coins, generate them. So it it could basically go to fully autonomous by by himself, earn its own money, and st and start spending it uh, with that uh, with that little hardware here. Uh, firecrackers. Um, it bought Mastering the Art of French Cooking as a PDF, uh, which actually never arrived for some reason, so it was uh, scammed here. And um, a digital uh, voice-changing device. A voice-changing mobile phone, so it would just like change your voice when you talk. Um like a specific device produced for that. Um, then it would buy 1 million, 1.5 million email addresses, just like uh, in a text file we could use for, yeah. I don't know, spam maybe, or yeah. something else. This vendor never delivered. Um, this was really, this was actually the most expensive um, the bot bought. It cost 100 US dollars and the Bender was then banned from the platform for having scammed probably a lot of people with this. Um, the next was a British gas bill. Um, this is the template. You can see it on the left um, because it tells you what font you need to use to put in the address. Um, the, the British use this type of bill for proof of... Of identity. Um, yeah, and of living somewhere. So it seems, you know, to come in handy sometimes. Um, then it bought a tutorial, uh, like a PDF, how to hack a Coca-Cola machine. Um, you know, just like those with an LCD screen. Um, yeah. uh, they have a code which you can basically, you know, uh, get into the engineering mode. And this is described here. Yeah, so if you're interested, it's uh, on the website. Um, then the random darknet chopper moved to an exhibition space in Ljubljana called Axioma, and it bought the last items there in February and March this year. The first was a $50 gold coin, a fake one, um, 
So the coin is not actually gold, it's gold sprayed and it's the same weight or the weight it needs to be. And it's a collector's coin from Canada. And it bought Camagra, which is a Viagra, how do you say? Uh, like copy, um, produced in Thailand. Um, yeah, this arrived. It bought uh, how to um, not be arrested when shopping in the darknet. Yeah, then something which we are still waiting for. Uh, this is still like being delivered, uh, the vendor said. Uh, uh, it's coming from China. And it are basically, tw uh, it said, a car locksmith tools. So these are basically um, lock, picking. lock picking tools. So you can open up any car. Um, with with this tool set, but we're still waiting for that. And and then this one was uh, a 16 rounds of security holographic stickers. So maybe you know, if you I don't know, want to prove that something is new, you put something like that on it, and uh, you're good to go. So I think with this work, one of our interests was also like really, you know. Something that artists can do is really go and have a look what there really is and what's really happening somewhere, what the aesthetics is of a space. This is what the work was aimed at. Yeah, and we finished that performance and we said that it was enough, like 25 items now, 25 weeks of not knowing, not sleeping well. Every time he goes and chops something, uh, it's kind of good and, and we said like we won't do that live performance again so there is like a video installation now which is still like touring a lot but uh, um, actually as a, as a live performative thing it has ended also because uh, needs a lot of work like the shops they're very like in a temporary state on the deep web so they appear and they disappear um, um, so this is like the third shop we are already using now. Uh, the biggest one is Agora at the moment, but Agora had just like a leak last week where um, every uh, communication between a buyer and a messenger, which wasn't encrypted another time, was leaked, and uh, which produce, produces a lot of stress at the moment. So they would maybe also go offline really soon and another shop would appear but uh, we also like it that you know the whole deep web is kind of you can run websites out which is encrypted and not locatable out from your mobile phone and it's only on when your mobile phone is on so it's it's like a different space than we know how the internet works it has like its own time logics we'd like to show you very briefly um a set, a uh, quick run-through of works we've been doing since the Random Darknet Chopper, which all continue on this idea of human-bot relationships. Um, the first one is called Same Same. It was a um, small online performance we did for the Gabriel Voltaire, uh, which is the Dada's birthplace in Zurich. Um, there's an art institution there now, and they had an exhibition last year where we did an online performance on their website. Um, that it's very easy to explain. Um, we basically exchanged all images on their website with 
um, similar images through the Google Similar Images search algorithm. As you may know, this algorithm is secret, but um, because it's one of the largest, it's actually very important for what machines see, you know, like the, the Google algorithm uh, is very decisive on what uh, a computer can see on a certain image. And because nobody knows how the algorithm works exactly, um, we called this uh, watching algorithms because with the around, I don't know, probably around 1,000 images that are on the websites of Gabriel Voltaire, running through them, you get an idea of what the machine sees on a certain image and where it sort of sees similarities. Um, so this was a, like a small performative work running surveillance technologies against um, Dada images. So this is like the, the original image and uh, these are like the exchanged images. So you could exchange the Cabaret Volta logo with the Volkswagen logo. And, so, yeah. Yeah. So, but... And um, so basically... Um, Google Similar Images works really well on people. It has no problem, especially historic people, in recognizing them. This is Hans Arp from the website on the right. Google exchanges his image with a, uh, an art piece of his. Um, yeah. Here you even have like... Oscar Wilde's. Yeah, some, but probably from the same photo shoot. Just like uh, some frames afterwards. Then you get this type of... Um, Champman Brothers on the left. Irvin, like artists on the left. From Slovenia, Neue Slovenische Kunst. Yeah. Uh, Rose Selavi from Duchamp. Twice. Then uh, architecture works not that well, but still very, very nice exchange. Yeah. To recognize the art piece. Here again. Here also. Here, this is, I mean, yeah. It's even the same exhibition. No, it's not the same common. It's, no? it's a, oh, no. are different it's art not. pieces on the right. Yeah, yeah it's true. It's the same setting, but it's not the same pictures inside. Oh, yeah. yeah. This is actually the most surprising because you have, on the left, you have person, image, mirror, and you also have the same on the right. That's a mirror. Uh, this is a public art piece we did for an um, institution called the House of Electronic Arts in Basel. They invited us to do um, a public art piece on their facade, this facade. We basically took an image of the facade and glitched it. Um, this is like, you know, and then we told the architect we wanted this rebuilt on the facade. So we wanted to basically, you know, build a software error which is totally temporary and disappears. Uh, it's just like a fluid thing, you know, to build it out of stone. We thought it's kind of a good humor with our humor. So um, we have like this building which looks like a rendering error at the moment there and where you are sometimes not really sure anymore. I'm like, where am I? Is it like... Uh, 
Is it the physical reality? Is it the virtual reality? It looks like a 3D rendering. And for us, it was really about also because the glitch is, it's the error in the surface. I, I mean, there's like two ways technology is probably going, and one of them is trying to gloss over the surfaces so you don't realize there are any errors, trying to get all errors out. And the glitch or the error is always the moment when you sort of see beneath that surface and where you sort of ask yourself, how does this work? And this is exactly what also happened with this building. So people would, you know, they would stand there going like to us at the opening, they were going, how does, what are you going to do with the water from the roof? You know, where's the water going to go? This sort of, and you never ask yourself, where does the water go? You know, looking at a new building. And we really wanted the surreal feeling you get from architectural renderings also. You know, sometimes you look at them and you're not sure, is the building already built? You know, am I looking at a photograph or the rendering? And... So this also has to do with machine vision and um, our latest exhibition, uh, which we opened last uh, exactly a week ago, also in Switzerland, um, is an exhibition where we were really interested in bringing the Ashley Madison hack into the exhibition space. So it's basically translation of this hack into like an, an art exhibition. Ashley Madison is an adultery website. So it's a website where you can, I mean, this is like the official narrative where uh, married men and married women can meet for casual, you know, to uh, make dates for casual sex. Um, this website was hacked last year uh, in summer and all the data published online and from that leak it became clear that there were actually no women on this website or hardly any women, female users. There were a lot of male users. So you had like 35 million male users. And 75,000 chatbots um, to sort of chat with these male users because... It's probably not how women work. I don't know. Maybe it's not the type of thing women want to do online, whatever. But what we found really interesting was this relationship between bots and humans on this website. So um, you had to pay for every interaction. Like, every time you wanted to chat with somebody, you had to pay. And so people were paying to chat with uh, female chat bots. And um, we started analyzing this data because we thought it was, um, or it, for us, it, it's very interesting, you know, to have this, to understand that with all the discussion around AI and, and bots and uh, automation, you also get these very strange websites that just use the technology that's there to scam people into paying to chat with um, bots. Yeah, and we were really interested, like in, in you know, in the relationship, because we thought, and you would see that, like within the data, that the relationships of the men towards to, to those bots, they were real. So they would think they are having, like, they're really um, negotiating, Chatting, yeah. negotiating something. They're flirting together, so they would always um, look for the error at their side. So when you you don't understand the answer from the from the chatbot, you would think, oh, maybe. 
I reacted wrongly or something. So that, you know, the physical experience, it was real, although mm -hmm. there was no, um, no, no relationship from the other side. And we really, you know, we think that that, that moment is really interesting. So this is uh, one of the pickup lines from the code um, from these fembots. Is anybody home? Lol, they would write. I don't know why the lol, it's maybe, I don't know, to make it sound more human. And we um, cast this into a, a capture text um, because captures as the online Turing tests to ensure no bots are on certain websites like social media um, actually has made or has led to the development of a whole uh, industry, especially in Southeast Asia, of people who solve captures for bots. So you can buy 1,000 capture um, solvings for not a lot of dollars and just have your yeah. spam bots go so everywhere. So your bot would send the image to capture... To a to physically to a to a person sit, sitting in front of a computer, it would solve it for you within five seconds and send the result back. And you know you would pay one cent for that kind of task. And this is all automated. And you have like huge farms uh, in Thailand at the moment where you know people are sitting in front of those desks and doing this stupid work. Uh, you know uh, this kind of bot-like work, which is now being run by by humans, which is. Yeah. Uh, so this sort of mechanical Turk, it leads to, um, yeah. So bots make people become bots somehow. <laughs> well, yeah. And um, so we, um, we placed five chat bots within the exhibition. They all look uh, like this. There's uh, two more. They speak different languages, and they basically just talk to you in their pickup lines, um, asking you to come online and to chat with them. Mm, they use this mask, uh, or they use this mask on the website just like to hide the identity of the bots, so they use stolen images from the web and would just place masks on, on, on them so um, you wouldn't recognize who it is and they would play with the, you know, with that anonymity um, kind of thing. Um, this is uh, a printer which is um, printing part of the about around 200,000 emails from the CEO's inbo inbox. So Ashley Madison, the, the CEO, his inbox was also leaked. All his mails, about three years of mails, where um, the whole development of these bots becomes very apparent uh, where you know you have a lot of internal emails talking about you know scaling these bots going into new markets and they, uh, they would never never talk about bots they would use the term angels so um so this was like their code word for the bots like within the the whole uh, company they would they would call them angels or engagers so there is like the the mother angel script, which would basically produce the bots, and and and, but you know they would just like yeah, which you see here. Um, so when you so Ashley Madison is still online. I mean, you can still join Ashley Madison and 
see this all happening. Um, so if you go to Ashley Madison and you join Ashley Madison, um, there will be this in, in Gage's script, um, immediately creates bots around you, around your location. And here um, we ran Google Maps over the 250 nearest bots around the exhibition space, um, which sort of gives you, um, I don't know, a sort of an understanding of uh, the landscape around uh, that area. Um, so basically every bot needed um, a face, a name, and a location. So, yeah. So, like, with, I think it's um, on other apps also that you can also always see who, you know, who the nearest people around you are. Yeah, there's some idle bots, bots which are doing nothing. They're waiting for a, an event to be executed. So the whole thing is like event-based. So bots would be created whenever you, when you appear somewhere. You appear from Lisbon. They would like around you. New bots would like automatically be created. You log in. A bot from nearby would start to chat with you. You log out. Ten minutes afterwards, you would receive an email by asking you to come back because there's something to this, I mean like somebody wants to speak with you and uh, so this is just like a reference uh, to it and uh, basically we're working on a small online performance uh, now at the moment where um, yeah, we are playing with the 75,000 female chatbots which are in our hands at the moment which uh, you know, are, are, are like a small army they can chat, they can click, and uh, we'll see in which uh, context they will uh, appear. And uh, this should happen like in the next five, six, seven weeks. Yeah. Okay. So, Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> I was saying that uh, you, you questioned uh, the rhetorics of transparency, but at the same time, you also questioned the rhetorics of opacity. And I was wondering, um, taking these two, both, both sides of the equation into account in your work, uh, how do you find, um, for instance, um, this uh, use of other entities uh, by uh, artworks uh, li like yours? Especially taking taking into account um, if uh, uh, your concerns are more political than aesthetical, how do you see the, this kind of paradox? So I think I mean I guess as artists um, we're mostly interested in the aesthetics, but also in where it you know arises within relationships. So I think we're really at a probably at a point where a lot of um, systems we're very used to and which have been similar for long periods of time are actually at the moment being disrupted by these new networks arising around bots. And um, I think for us, it's it, a lot of times it's it's just we're just trying to keep up and sort of find trying to find images for what's happening so we can. Um, maybe understand it ourselves a bit better also. Hi. Uh, Hi. My name is Andre, and I'd just like to ask a couple of questions. One, one a bit more technical. I mean, uh, for instance, in the Assange piece or the Snowden piece, how did you manage to 
like broadcast live from country to country. And the other question would be, um, do you think that it's inevitable that we have bot armies all around? I mean, uh, countries are already doing that. And uh, how do you think we can make like a common um, global geometric space for humans to inhabit in the internet? The first question is, is kind of easy. Um, <laughs> it's a technical thing. So, um, yeah, we, 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 we had like this idea of building the parcel and, and um, started to build a computer for it. You know, something which would use low power, uh, have like a mobile chip inside, a camera, GPS, and after like a month of working on it, or three weeks, we, I, we started to realize we are rebuilding a mobile phone. So everything we need, a mobile phone has it. So we just taped a mobile phone on that on the outer thing of the parcel, uh, attached batteries to it, extended, uh, wrote software for it, basically, which would do whatever we want, and then upload it uh, to our server, just like we are SIM card. You know, I'm like really um, st standard thing now. I mean, like we couldn't broadcast it live because the reception within uh, live in a sense of video uh, within the parcel was too bad, so we started to use something safe. Uh, pictures was safe at that moment. So, so yeah, we we guess it was. We also think that the postal services also scanned it and must have tried to check what was inside. Um, we published a scan of the parcel with the aim of sort of um, making it recognizable which of these parcels was ours, because there's a lot of technology being sent around. And you, you know, from a scan, you cannot see whether it's, you know, operating on or not. We also know that the police knew about the thing, because it, it would go, it would enter a diplomatic circle. So within the postal system, the diplomatic circle is kind of a, a high surveilled thing. So the police also called the embassy if that you know, they knew that this parcel is coming and uh, if they would accept it. Uh, if not, the police would have destroyed it. But since Assange was already waiting for it, um, they said, okay, let's pass it through. But uh, they still needed time to decide how to deal with it. Yeah, and the reason why uh, Julian Assange was waiting for this parcel, well, waiting, I mean, why he knew about it was because we, we didn't know him when we did this performance, but we because we didn't want the embassy to feel threatened by this parcel. Um, we wrote him like an, uh, a public a email, public email um, stating our reasons for doing this and like trying to warn him. And we published this email as one of the first things we published when we posted the parcel. So this gave the people at the embassy like 24 hours to you know, figure out what they were gonna do with this thing coming. Because we also knew that cameras, um, yeah, they're not highly, um, you know, welcomed in embassy spaces. Uh, yeah. And I think the, the other question you ask is really interesting. I mean, statistically, I guess um, online traffic now is about, I think nearly 50% of online traffic now is, is from bots. So... Um, I guess we're, you know, especially like 
the internet is a space where I guess you're not alone anymore if you define being alone being only with humans and bots do various things online um, from you know finding content um, sorting. sorting content finding sorting through data whatever but I think um, I think what bothers us a bit is that um, all these people working on these artificial intelligence or I don't know algorithmically um, uh, based networks for doing things, um, I don't think they talk of the implications and of the disruption coming from these networks, potentially. And I think the arts are a good field for sort of reflecting that or for trying to find a different angle to look on things. That is not like, whoa, look, look what my bots can do, this sort of, um, you know, very happy uh, welcome to the family, but it's also not the, um, we have to stop working on this, we cannot continue with technology, because we think, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a path you go down and you can sort of try and reflect or trying to anticipate the, the questions that will arise and try to find ways of dealing with them, maybe. Um, first of all, thank you for your presentation. And I think as well that it's um, quite rare that an artist expose himself to so much uh, contingent events as you do. And I think that's really honest and, and rare. And I was noticing, noticing, especially in your first project, how people were spending so many hours looking at the post and how people appreciate how much time the post takes to go but how people don't like to wait for a tweet to get published and don't like the, to expend so much time in this. I mean, for example, if an email takes more than five seconds, they are angry. And actually, I like as well, because then I see it in your work how you kind of try to materialize internet and the time it takes for your order, for example, to come. So I would like to hear for your thoughts about this kind of a fetish around this kind of this long travel of the material besides the internet? I guess that was one of the, the probably the, the strange realizations we had right at the beginning of delivery for Mr. Assange was that, I mean, not only does regular posts take forever in terms of, you know, online time, um, it's also this really clever thing where you have something called postal secrecy, you know? Nobody can read your mail, um, you know, at one point... Uh, Societies decided that it was a good idea to, you know, for people to be able to receive their mail in privacy, whereas you don't have that with emails, um, which is actually, I mean, it's strange somehow if you think of that. And I think for people, um, especially with that work, the, I think the fascination really comes from these two totally different timescales of Twitter and of this parcel. And when our servers went down, it became even slower. You know, the images would take um, more than the three seconds they would usually take from the mobile phone in the box to the online space. They would sometimes be delayed for hours because the server was just not receiving anything. And, yeah, I think, I think that sort of... I think 
probably in the arts, a lot of times it's about finding these poetical situations where the times work differently. Um, a lot of our work is time-based, so time is always uh, something we think about extensively. start a piece of work it's like you're kind of you're you're trapped or you, there's a very reduced space of operation and then when you kind of go into it it expands you, you find freedom and um is that is that something that you felt almost in every piece and is that um is that why you're using technology and why you continue to use it and follow it because i mean Working technology is a pain in the ass, right? It, it's time-consuming and restrictive. Um, you could be painting. Um, so, I mean, it, with, with every piece of work there, there was this very, very narrow aperture that, that expanded. Yeah. And I just wondered whether that, that, that was something that was increasing, one. And what, what were your initial motivations for starting to use this stuff in the first place? Yeah, so maybe, maybe like the, in the first one, we, I think there is like this thing which always repeats and this is the, the kind of way we l try to look at things and, and try to find a way to deal with topics and we try to define that like some years ago maybe 10, 10 years, 2008 we did an exhibition and we thought it would be nice to analyze hacking, what does hacking mean nowadays and uh, we tried to, to reduce it to three steps for us and all those three steps are always like in every project you still have them and we're still kind of following that thing and the first thing is that we try to understand how a system works whatever it is a technical system or a social system or, or our thing but you know if there is an interest for, for like a specific situation we try to figure out who are the players uh, how are they based, and, and what, what are the possibilities, basically. And, and the, the second thing is the moment of, uh, of, uh, of intervening, of, of trying to change things, change the data stream, which is defining the system, and then to see what happens, basically, as a third thing, as a feedback, produce a feedback where the public can maybe participate with the piece. Like in the Assange performance, it's like participating in watching the stream, being part of it. But not only as a, as a far recipient, but you know, in, in a personal means. You can relate to the webcam more than to a TV maybe, or to your computer, to the browser you own by yourself than if you broadcast it over satellite TV. It's like it would be the wrong media at this specific moment. So, and we, we always, you know, all our projects, so now in, in that Ashley Madison thing, we are still in the, in the phase where we're in, in the first step, where we're trying to understand how this thing works by reading the code, by analyzing, by kind of, you know, trying to expand our view. And then we, maybe if we are lucky, we'll be able to do something like, like more like in, in, a, in an uh, inter in intervention based, which, which might lead to a precise result or, or not, or to an interesting situation. But this is just like the moment where we are in at the moment. I think when we started doing art with technology the internet was a really I mean it was a very promising space it was like hey you can just publish your stuff online people can see it you don't you know you don't need a publisher you don't need the gallery you don't 
it's this very direct thing. So we do, I mean, we were too late for the net art generation. Net art had already happened, but that was something that interested us a lot, you know, being able to use technology to directly publish stuff or intervene into things. Misused internet, you know. I mean, one of the, like, the very first things we did, so Bitnik started actually from from a server we had at um, Art University um, within that network. And there was this, um, in the early 2000s, there was this application for schools in Switzerland where you could um, send SMS uh, text messages for free. And you could also call telephones for free, for example. You could recharge your prepaid mobile by, by calling it, for example. And one of the things we found out quite quickly is how to use a computer to call all the public phones within a city, you know, to have this, you would have this very strange orchestra within a city, which would, of course, on, on public spaces or, uh, like, places, it would work well because you would have, like, I don't know, set of 20 phones in the same area and you could sort of call them randomly and so it was this type of thing that was very interesting to us so also the the physical space I think was very important from the beginning it was not only the online space is the sense of freedom still there with bitcoin and decentralized networks of trust or have you, are, you, are you more, um, you're older now and you've seen where the internet has gone? And I don't know, I don't know. We, we've met like really good people in the last two years where we were like, you know, after, after the snow and lakes kind of, I mean like, fuck, where are we heading? You know, I mean like, you know, we built the biggest surveillance machine, which is there. And, uh, and it used to be our home. I mean like, what do we do with that? And at the same time, you meet people at the hackers conference at the CCC and we'll go there to meet them and to speak with them about the problems and they would say hey let's build a new internet you know, we know let's encrypt it this, oh, time. this is shit we need to you know we, mm. we've done it we've done it 20 years ago why shouldn't it be possible to do it again so you know so at the same time there's like there's still hope <laughs> it's, it's not all bad but uh, there are many things yeah which uh, we should learn from and we now know that uh, yeah that we are living in the age of surveillance capitalism that uh, everything which is grabbable will be grabbed and everything which is doable you know with surveillance technology will be done and everything will be captured and everything is captured and and you know the yeah and and, and will i don't know i i still think there is there's not a technical solution for it but there is like a, a social technical c cultural solution for it 